When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think shares bright ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. For the Think Again podcast, our producers spelunk deep into our digital vaults and surprise me and my guests with unexpected ideas that spark unscripted conversations. Today, I'm quietly but definitely geeking out to be joined by one of my literary superheroes, Salman Rushdie. His dizzying, dystopian, post-atheist new novel is crammed so full of amazing stories that it threatens to burst out of its binding. It's called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Welcome to the show, Salman. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Are we living in the time of the strangenesses? I think we are. I mean, I think that was the reason for writing the book in that way. I was trying to express... I think a feeling that is pretty general, that we live in a, a very bizarre time where unexpected and unprecedented things happen almost every day. Speaking of strange and unprecedented things that happen, apparently there, a literary critic wrote an article in Harper's arguing that a novel that was published earlier this year that nobody bought that has two reviews on Amazon was actually written by Thomas Pynchon and he had done all of this. Yes, I saw it. I saw it. Yes, you saw it. I saw it. Okay. And then Pynchon's wife and literary agent denied that this was the case and then put the critic in touch with someone who may or may not have been Pynchon. I thought that you would appreciate the sort of (laughs) blend of fact and fiction and the uncertainty in that. Yeah, I thought it was a, actually a very erudite article, but I don't, I don't really believe it. I think at this point, Pinchon puts his name on his books if he wants to. Yeah, I suppose I don't really believe it either, although it would be a, a nice story if it were true. It would be. <laughs> if it was a short story, I might believe it, but I don't believe that Pinchon would write a 500-page novel and publish it secretly so that nobody could buy it. No, I'm one of the few people who've actually had dinner with Thomas Pinchon's He's actually a very chatty and affable guy. There's something in him that prefers that kind of extreme privacy because when we had dinner, I I assumed at the end of it that we were kind of friends now and we would every so often hang out. And then he never, ever, ever called again. (laughs) So, (laughs) Okay, so here's how this works. Our producers have chosen short interview clips for us to listen to. They could be on any subject and they're a total surprise to me too. Are we ready to watch the first one? Yes. All right. What have you found for us, Aaron? So this is a clip of Slavoj Žižek, and he talks about whether it's better to be happy or interesting. You know, happiness is for me a very conformist category. It doesn't enter the frame. 
famous proclamation of independence, you know, pursuit of happiness. If there is a point in psychoanalysis, it is that people do not really want or desire happiness. For example, let's be serious. When you are in a creative endeavor, in that wonderful fever, my God, I'm onto something, and so on. Happiness doesn't enter it. You are ready to suffer. You know, happiness is for me an unethical category. The classical story that I like, the traditional male chauvinist scenario. I am married to a wife, relations with her are cold, and I have a mistress. And all the time I dream, oh my God, if my wife were to disappear, I'm not a murderer, but let us say, uh, drop me, it would open up new life for me with the mistress. That then, for some reason, wife goes away, you lose the mistress also. You thought, this is all I want, when you have it there, you turn out that it was a much more complex situation where what you want is not really to live with the mistress. I claim that this is how things function. We don't really want what we think we desire. One thing that he said was very interesting to me, which was that in the heat of creative endeavor and discovery, when you feel like you're really on to something, happiness doesn't enter into it. Do you think that's true? I understand what he's saying, but I think happiness has a great deal more to do with life than Slavoj uh, suggests. It's actually remarkably comprehensible for him. I've been on a stage having a conversation with him, and he would talk for 45 minutes, and I would really have no idea what he'd say. <laughs> what I think he's right about is the kind of be careful what you wish for thing that he's saying. The wife and mistress thing is kind of a cliche, but it is true that very often when the wife dies or leaves, the mistress also exits. I think that is quite common. Right. I can think of one or two people, even writers, to whom that happened, but let's not name them. I like the fact that America, you know, in its kind of origin documents, talks about the right to the pursuit of happiness. We may be wrong about the, ha the kind of happiness we're pursuing. That's true. I think up to that point, he's right. That sometimes when you get what you think you want, you discover it's not that great. You know, the pursuit of anything is full of potholes but it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. He says at some point that he thinks happiness is an unethical, is an unethical position, which is a very Zizekian formulation. And like all such formulations, is something which is very amusing and not true. And I'm not sure how you would argue ag against that exactly. I mean, happiness is unethical. It's the kind of statement that you can make and throw out there, and, and there's sort of nothing to say to that. I mean, it's a comic assertion, <laughs> and I think... I know him well enough to know that it's a deliberately comic assertion. But like all his comic assertions, he believes it. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't mean that we have to. Are you happy when you're writing? Put it like this. I'm, I'm very unhappy when it's not going well. <laughs> That's true. And, and for most of the time of writing any book, it's not going well. There are moments, there are days when something just beautifully works on the page. I mean, I remember there's a, there's a scene in Shakespeare in Love yes. in which Shakespeare writes something that he likes and stands up and does a little pirouette and says, God, I'm good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, of course, if you're Shakespeare, those moments come quite frequently, I would have thought. But to all of us, they come occasionally. I do think, I mean, I, this is sort of the opposite of what Zizek's saying. I, mean, I think I am actually most happy in the act of making 
my work. When a book is going well, finally, you sort of feel you know what you're doing and you're writing pages that you feel that you would be happy for other people to read. Right. That is, it's a very good feeling. I'm not a kind of one book a year guy. But this one actually, strangely, took me just about the length of time expressed in the title. <laughs> really? <laughs> it, I just worked it out. It actually did take me about two years and eight and a half months. Um, <laughs> Something like that. So, bizarrely, it took me that long. You know, it doesn't happen that often that you bring a book to a state of completion. And what I mean by completion is that you're happy for other people to have a look at it and not embarrassed. Sure. That is, for me, is the best feeling. It's a much better feeling that moment than publication, for example. And is that a moment that you come to personally on your own uh, without... Is that in collaboration with your editor? No, I mean, I'm really unable to show work in progress. The work in progress is so fragile and still in a, in a state where it can change that I, I'm too scared to show it to anybody because if they don't have exactly the reaction that I would hope for, then it can, be, it can kind of derail you. So what I try to do is bring it to a state where I'm not really making it better anymore. I'm just pushing things around. And at that point, I become very, very interested in what other people have to say. And I really want them to tell me where the problems are, where they got confused or bored or where they wanted more of something or less of something. And I mean, I'm not saying I always do exactly what they ask me to do, but I really want to listen at that point. There is that second stage, which is in dialogue with other people. But I mean, there have been moments when I've made a mistake of showing somebody, you know, like half a book. I mean, I did it with The Moors Last Sigh. I'd written about 150 pages and I showed it to a couple of people and they really liked it and I couldn't write again for about three months. Oh my um, God. It just, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. My rule is you keep your mouth shut and then it comes out through your fingers. I completely understand that, but it must also be a lonely business. I'm thinking about that you said what I know to be true, that the bulk of the process is often a struggle. There, there are a lot of times where you don't know where things fit. If it could be anywhere from two years to five years until the thing is done, um, kind of how yeah. do you sustain yourself in that battle? How do you tell yourself it's all going to work out? That's where we come back to this happiness thing. It has to be what you like to do. And I think there's just something about the temperament of the novelist as opposed to the poet or the playwright or the screenwriter. There's something about the novelist's temperament which is the long-distance runner. It's the difference between a sprinter and a marathon runner. It's just a different temperament. You can write a screenplay in a very intense burst of, you know, even a week, or at least a draft of it. You can't write a novel like that. So you have to get into the rhythm of the marathon runner where you're just chipping away the miles. You're just, you know, chipping away a paragraph a day or a page a day, and you simply console yourself with the thought that one day you, you will reach the end. You know, like most novelists, I have that temperament. I have the temperament of the long-distance runner. This is a very big joke for me to be using an athletic metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I'm really the least athletic of individuals. <laughs> All right. So I think we're ready for the next one. What do you have for us, Jonathan? So this is physicist Lee Smolin and his evolutionary theory of the universe. Another kind of question unfolds itself, which is, why are those the laws and not other laws? Why are those numbers what they are in our universe? Why is the mass of the electron what it is and not 12 times larger or half the size? There are dozens of questions like this. 
So I developed cosmological natural selection to try to give an evolutionary account of this so that there would be a history back before the Big Bang in which these numbers could change and evolve through a series of events like the Big Bang. And there could be an explanation akin to natural selection. A certain kind of fitness has been improved over many, many generations. And similarly, there could be a notion of fitness of the laws of nature. And I realized that the only methodology that was really successful for explaining how choices were made in nature, such as to lead to an improbable amount of structure, is natural selection. So for natural selection, we need reproduction. And there was a hypothesis lying around that universes reproduce through black holes, that inside black holes, rather than there being singularities where time ends, there were the, basically the bursts of new regions of space and time which could become new universes. And just added a little bit, which is that those changes should be very small so that there can be accumulation of fitness. It leads to a prediction or an observation that after many, many generations, the population of universes should be fine-tuned to maximize the production of black holes. And that has further implications for things that we can actually try to measure and disprove experimentally. So that's very briefly the idea of cosmological natural selection. First of all, you know, I should mention that I almost became a physicist. Really? Uh, yeah. At 16, my, by far, my best subjects were math and physics. And it was generally assumed that I was going to become a physicist stroke mathematician. And then, in some strange way, I jumped ship and moved over to the useless, unemployable art side. <laughs> and, uh, and have stayed there ever since. I mean, I love what's happening in physics right now. I think that physics has become more closely related than it ever used to be to metaphysics. And I think this kind of conversation is an example of that because the amount of order in the universe is very, very striking. And that the order of the very small, uh, the, the way in which things are arranged in the subatomic world, are remarkably similar to the way things are arranged on the very largest scale that there is, the universal scale, the kind of pan-galactical scale. And the similarity of the very small and the very big is really is a very striking thing. And for him to begin to ask why questions is a kind of rather wonderful moment, you know, because science usually tries to ask what questions and how questions. And to begin to ask why questions about the precise nature of the universe is a, a move from the traditional province of the sciences into the province of philosophy. And I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by this, and I really regret that my knowledge of physics has now dwindled to a kind of <laughs> informed layman's knowledge, and that I can't really grasp these concepts anymore. It's a very interesting idea he has, and I've heard it before, that black holes are universe factories. This may or may not be true. It's a beautiful theory. I mean, I like it. I like it as a theory, and I think it could be actually useful in the arts. It could be useful to writers and poets and filmmakers and, and so on. I have two thoughts as you were speaking. One was about physics having turned into a branch of philosophy and how in the absence of provability you have a proliferation of theories everything from multiple universes to string theory going back to quantum me mechanics so what i find really interesting about this is that it problematizes what we think science is supposed to be right i mean science is supposed to be testable reproducible yeah. what do you think about that the thing that i admire about science is its modesty 
the fact that it is not willing to make assertions which are not backed up by evidence. When we get to this level, that the kind of assertions being made uh, in the clip, you know, he himself, I think, would argue that this is a theoretical position that is interesting and that bears investigation, you know. But the great thing about science is that they understand the limitations of knowledge. And they also know that not to know everything does not mean that we know nothing. I like that. That's how people should think. I like that too. And I sort of wish that all science was like that. I think that something else happens too, where more reproducible sciences like chemistry and medicine mm. perhaps lead people to a kind of what you might term scientistic yes. thinking that is, if it's not reproducible, then it isn't science. And so we end up with strange schisms yeah. in, in that regard. Yeah, that's true, because I say physics is bordering on the, on the edge of, of philosophy. One of the things I tried to explore in my novel is the way in which the boundary between the rational and the irrational, the boundary between, between reasoned, logical, careful, methodical thought and instinctive, inspirational, irrational thought is not as great as you might think. When things are working well, the two feed into each other and, and help and support each other. But when they're completely separated from each other, it can actually be a problem in, in thought. If you have only kind of provable and not the inspirational, it's very difficult to move forward. Yes, I understood that central idea in your book and loved it. The frontispiece yes. with the Goya etching blew my mind because I had always interpreted that known only the part about the sleep of reason brings forth monsters and interpreted that as a defense of reason as against superstition. Yeah, but it's, it's not really. It's about the alliance of imagination and reason as being the best possible outcome. And the separation of them is what leads to in, in Goya's idea, which leads to the monstrous. Now it is time for the part of our show where the guest pushes the button on the random quote generator and reads the quote of the week. Salman, would you be so kind as to do that for us? Okay, yes. I can't spell worth a damn with can't has no apostrophe and damn has no N. Hope you're going to tell me what to do with two, two, two has a double O. And the answer says, don't worry about how your articles look. Remember, it's the message that counts, not the way it's presented. Ignore the fact that sloppy spelling in a purely written forum sends out the same silent messages that soiled clothing would when addressing an audience says somebody called Brad Templeton of Emily Post News, which I think is a really terrible piece of advice. Well, I'm a kind of grammar Nazi. <laughs> I mean, I like, people, I like people to be able to put apostrophes where they belong and spell things correctly and, and not write in a kind of illiterate way. I'm afraid illiterate writing suggests to me illiterate thinking, and it means that I don't pay any attention to what the person's saying. So I think you should worry about how your articles look. That seems an odd bedfellow with the amount of time that you have spent on Twitter, where it's sort of hard to get those things right when you're rapid fire interacting with people. Have you ever had to delete? I'm always scolding people for their absurd Twitterees. <laughs> people should not tweet me in that way. <laughs> okay, if you tweet at Salman, please use grammatical sentences. I will say before I let him go that I once tweeted at you, you had used the word badassery in a tweet and I said, I refuse to believe that Salman Rushdie just tweeted badassery. <laughs> and then you wrote, badassery, 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 believe it. Yes. Um, and that 
That kind of made my day. Oh, good. Well, I actually remember that little exchange. (laughs) I think there is actually at least one instance of badassery cropping up in one of my books, but I can't remember which one at the moment. I shall hunt for it. Salman Rushdie, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Please just keep doing what you do, the long distance running. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it too. And normally we'd end the show right here, but there's one last little piece that I didn't want to leave out about the great writer and neurologist Oliver Sacks, who died less than a month ago. Well, you know, he was a brilliant man, Oliver, and I was lucky enough to know him a little bit. And he was always just a joy and a delight to be with because you never knew where his mind was going to go. And you found yourself suddenly in very deep water in a place you'd never been. <laughs> and, and he was quite cheerful about not understanding himself either. So, I mean, he had a true scientist's mind, but yoked with a real literary mind. And that's it for Think Again this week. Salman Rushdie's new book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, is really excellent. Next week, I'm joined by author and game designer Jane McGonigal. That's it. See you next week.